Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our study in 2 Corinthians. And uh, this week, we're going to look only at one chapter, just chapter 3, which has been a source of confusion for centuries. Uh, it shouldn't be, but uh, we're going to talk about why it is and how we can diffuse the confusion that surrounds this chapter. It's kind of funny. This is the one chapter that Christians can read and Jews can read, and they both agree on, and they're both wrong. Uh, Christians read this chapter, and they say, See, see, Paul is against the Torah, and he's throwing the Torah aside and replacing it with the New Testament scriptures. And then a Jew can read it and say, See, see, Paul is throwing the Torah aside and he's replacing it with these New Testament scriptures. What a heretic. But we're going to find out as Paul is doing no such thing at all. And um, when we approach this step by step and just read it slowly, read it clearly, understand the terms, we're going to find out the chapter makes perfect sense. In fact, this chapter contains a powerful message for every one of us. And it may bring out something about our own salvation and God's method for bringing salvation to the world that maybe we've never seen before. So, let's begin. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we will start with verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? If you recall, back at the end of 1 Corinthians, there were a couple chapters there where Paul was embarrassed to have to uh, basically justify his apostleship and to provide his credentials. And uh, so he's kind of going back to that. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Messiah, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now those two verses, verses 2 and 3, contain a lot of analogies. <clears throat> and these analogies actually carry out through the chapter. So it's very important that we decipher these analogies and understand what the symbols represent. So he says um, here concerning the letter, he says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. So the letter is who? You could put there the Corinthians. The Corinthians are the letter. <clears throat> but you know what? If you wrote Corinthians in there, that's fine. But let's personalize this some. Let's say you are the letter. You can put your own name in there. Because as we go through here, I want you to ask yourself a question. You are a letter being written by Messiah, a spiritual letter. And everyone you encounter in this world is reading your message, the message of you. What is your message saying? Who's writing it? Is your message clear? Is your message one that's written by Messiah that brings a message of hope, love, purpose, of uh, confidence and courage? Or is the message in your life being written by a different spirit? Is it one of fear and hopelessness, pride and ego? Is it one that's uh, a message of hopelessness and, hopelessness and disbelief and selfishness? 
So the letter is you. Now, what is the medium? What is the letter being written on? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. But then at the end of verse 3, it says written on the tablets of human hearts. So it's written on human hearts. When we impact a life, when we encounter another individual, we leave a message, an imprint upon their hearts. Is it a good imprint or a bad? Is it a good message or a negative message? What is the ink? What is the medium? Uh, what what uh, substance is used to write this letter? Uh, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from a side delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. So the ink is the, we'll just put Spirit of God. Now be aware that other spirits can be writing on hearts through you as well. Who is the writer? He says it's a letter from Messiah. Who is the mailman? Who is delivering this letter? You show that your letter from Messiah delivered by us. So you could put Paul and the apostles to the Corinthians. But let's personalize it again, because this letter is you. So, who is the mailman in your life? Who is the one who's delivering your message to others? It could be a teacher. It could be a parent. Who is the one who is introducing to others? Who is the one whose message is being carried to others? Who's the, who's the one? Who is the one? And then who is the reader? Who is reading the message of your life? Paul says, everyone. Everyone is reading the message. You know, Yeshua was the Word made flesh. He was the Word incarnate. He was God's Word so that every action, every deed was the Word of God. It came directly from God's mind. When you heard Yeshua speak, it was God's words. Oh, that we could be like that. Unfortunately, what comes from us as we transition from being immature and selfish to being mature and and being more of a godly man, more godly woman, we tend to have a bit of a mixed message. And um, our goal is that we too could be one who walked like Yeshua, who lived and talked like Yeshua, so what comes forth from us is God's word. So everyone is reading the message of your life. Your message is being imprinted upon their hearts. And messages can make us just glow with joy and hope and encouragement. Or messages can depress us, bring us down, cause fear, cause confusion. You are a message. You are a word. But is it the word of God that's coming through you? Are you his speech? Or are you the speech of the ego? Are you the speech of the enemy? Are you the speech of 
false religion and doctrine? Are you the speech of selfishness? Are you the speech of fear? What is the word that you are to other people? Yeshua was God's message to the world. God wants you to be his message to the world. Because in the spiritual realm, the message and the messenger should be one. So we want to carry the message of the good news, but are we being the message of the good news? We want to talk about God and faith in him, but are we an example of faith in God? Do we say one thing but live in fear? So we need to be consistent. So we, the messenger, and God's message are one and the same. So it's quite a challenge. There's a lot going on here in just two verses that we could spend a lot of time on. But time is one of the things we do not have. So we're going to continue on. Excuse me, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Messiah toward God. Such is the confidence that we have through Messiah toward God. Through Messiah, we have this confidence towards God that not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Excuse me, I've got this frog in my throat this morning. On that verse alone, a lot of people think, well, therefore, the Old Testament scriptures are deadly, and we need to get rid of them and replace them with something more spiritual, with the New Testament scriptures, because these are more life-giving. And if that's what you think, you're completely missing what Paul has to say. First of all, let's understand what the covenant is. The covenant is not the Torah. The covenant is the agreement to keep the Torah. Again, the covenant is not the Torah. The covenant is the agreement to keep the Torah. The old covenant, the old agreement to obey the Torah has faded away and has been replaced by a new covenant, a new testament, a new agreement to keep the Torah. And those of you who have been in Messianic Judaism for any time at all are intimately familiar with Jeremiah 31, starting with verse 31. Let me read it to you and listen carefully to what it says. Behold, the days are coming, declares Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Adonai. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. I will write it on their hearts. Ah, Wasn't Paul just talking about that we are a message of God being written on human hearts? God says, I'm going to write my Torah, not a new Torah, not a different Torah, not a replacement Torah, but I'm going to write my Torah, the same Torah, I'm going to write it on their hearts. There's going to be a new medium. There's going to be a a different ink, so to speak. And it's going to be a living message, a spiritual message. It's going to take the, the Torah and instead of being merely external on stones, it's going to be internal on hearts. A new agreement to keep the Torah. 
And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Adonai, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Adonai. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. <clears throat> so, has the new covenant replaced the old? Absolutely. But it doesn't mean the New Testament scriptures have replaced the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures are the scriptures. The Torah, the scriptures, are not the covenant. The covenant's the agreement to keep the scriptures, to obey the Torah. And there's a new agreement. I always use the analogy of a husband and wife. Uh, they, they get, a couple gets married, they go up the aisle, he makes his vows to her, she makes her vows to him. And once they do that, they are husband and wife. They've made an agreement to keep the vows. But over time, things go south. They, they grow distant from one another. They separate. They get a divorce. And I know of couples who have divorced, but then later, as they, they grew up, they matured, and they became less selfish, they remarried one another. The vows remained the same, but the covenant, the agreement to keep those vows was brand new. So they made a new covenant to keep the same vows. God is, has introduced in the world a new covenant to keep his Torah, a new agreement to keep the same rules, the same standard of righteousness. And it says here that the letter kills, the spirit gives life. He talks about how he's writing this covenant, writing this Torah on our hearts, not on just tablets of stone. There's a, a wonderful image that I want to impress upon you. I wish I had a better picture to illustrate this. This is a, a photograph I took in Israel. I forget if it's a synagogue or a church I went into, but... Um, I want you to notice something. This, this building is made from stone. But in the top of the building, in the dome, there's a hole. And you can see the beams of sunlight coming through that hole. According to Jewish tradition, when God carved out the two tablets of stone with the ten words, the ten commandments, the letters that he engraved went all the way through the stone and out the other side. So each letter was a penetration, a hole that went completely through the stone. That means that when you held that stone, that tablet, up to the sunlight, the words were light. The words, the light came through the letters. The stone was there to define the light, but the stone was not the light. Kind of like the hole that's in this dome. You can think of the dome as being the letter. It's something dead, just like stone is dead, like parchment is dead, like ink is a dead thing. But the light that came through that stone, this is the spirit. And Paul tells us back in, um, in Romans that God's word is spiritual. It's a very spiritual thing. So when you think of these tablets from now on, think of the letters going all the way through. So you have this heavy stone, this stuff that came from the earth, but through it comes the sunlight, which comes from the heavenlies. And because of the stone, the light takes on definition and clearer meaning to us. 
And if you have the light without the stone, you don't really know what the light is saying. If you have the stone without the light, well, you're living by feel. <laughs> if you can read Braille and figure out the letters, it's just, but it's just not the same. It's something that's just a dead weight that has a message, but it doesn't enlighten your life. We need both together. And it says here, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Let's focus on something here that we should all know by now. Unfortunately, most believers do not know this. So from this point onward, you're going to know something that's extremely important to have locked into your mind. And that's this. God's plan of salvation, his solution to sin, has two phases. There are two halves of it. Both halves are absolutely necessary. You cannot just have one part without the other and have rescue from sin. You cannot have salvation without these two elements. The first element is death. And then the second is life. But the life follows death. And let's define death. Death is separation. Life is connection. Now, when we think of death, we think of the invisible part of a person, the soul and the spirit, separating from the body. And when the soul and spirit leave the body, the body's dead. Boom. Because there's this separation. Because it's the spirit that gives life. When God created Adam's body out of the dead dust of the earth, he breathed into his nostrils the neshama of life, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When the spiritual came into the physical, the physical came alive. But when the spiritual leaves the physical, the physical returns to dust. It dies. The spirit gives life. And there has to be death before there can be life. And for salvation to operate and to succeed, there must always be death. It is absolutely necessary. It cannot be avoided. And there are plenty of examples of this in Scripture. Think, for example, God made Adam. Adam was lonely. He named all the animals, but there's not a helpmate for Adam. There's a solution here. So what did God do? He, he put Adam into a deep sleep. He cut him in half. He took one of his sides, not a rib, an entire side. So there's separation, death, separation. But out of that side, he created a bride for Adam. And then God brought the woman to the man, brought the bride to the man. And what happened? Now there's a new connection, a brand new connection. Is so much better than the previous one. Death and separation, life, connection. In the same passage in Genesis, it says that for this reason a man will leave his mother and father. That's a death. Oh, I'm so sad. So sad to see our son leaving the fold, leaving home. But what does he do? but then he cleaves to his wife. There's connection. Now, what happens if uh, things go as, as planned? 
um, somewhere down the road, the wife becomes pregnant. And then nine months later, there's a death. I know you're thinking there's a birth. Yeah, but what is birth? It's a separation. It is painful. It's not pretty. It's messy. And that body's baby is now separated from the mother's body. Uh, that baby's body is separate from the mother's body. The umbilical cord is cut. There's a separation. But what happens? When the baby's placed back in her arms, there's a new connection that's much better than the first one. And this baby can look into its mother's eyes. She can look into the baby's eyes. The baby now nurses at her breast. And then the father comes in and the joy, the glory that takes place when he sees this child for the first time. And the joy that the mother experiences seeing her husband hold this life that they've brought into the world. Oh my goodness, that new connection's incredible. And we can go through the scriptures and see many, many examples of how there is a necessary death before there is the resulting life. Remember that when Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They needed rescued. But what was the first thing God did? I mean, he spoke to them and pronounced a curse on the, the serpent, the curse on the soil. But then he drove them out of the garden. Why did he do this? Because he couldn't tolerate having them there? Because he was being mean? Because he wanted to punish them? No. He says, lest they take of the tree of life and live forever. In other words, they would try to go to step two before going through step number one. They had to be separated. They had to experience death before they could experience life. We're going to be harping on this theme quite a bit as we go through um, chapter 3. And I was not quite sure where to bring in these next two verses, but I'm just going to Stick them in here, and we'll be referring to them later. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove. This is a form of death, isn't it? I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Something's got to be separated here. I've got to take that old, hard, stony heart of yours and take it out. That is so necessary, and it's painful but it has to be done. And I know believers who've been believers for years and they still have old, stony, hard hearts. Oh, they've accepted some theology. They prayed a prayer. They've accepted Jesus as their Savior. They may even study the scriptures and teach a Bible study. They may even serve in the community and put money in the plate. But their hearts are still hard and stony. They're not new creations. They have to have the old heart removed. They have to die. So that's step one. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Step two, give you a heart of flesh. Give you a new heart. Remember, he writes his message on our hearts. And nobody likes to write on an old, used, smeared up piece of paper. We want a new sheet of paper to write on. God wants to give us a new heart that he can begin to write 
his Torah on and his message of love. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk, look at this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Keep my Torah. Paul says a very similar thing over in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the Torah could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, our flesh was just too weak to follow it. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. There's death. In order that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us. Did you ever catch that before in Romans 8? Why did God condemn sin in the flesh and put his spirit within us? So that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Always God's purpose for this death and this new life is so that we can arise to fulfill his standard of righteousness for us as it is recorded in his Torah. Is it making sense? Now, as we continue on, I want you to pay very close attention because this is where people get really confused. But anyways, just a quick review into verse uh, verse 6. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's very important for the Torah to come and do its work of killing in our lives. It has to come along and tell us that the way you're living is wrong, it is sin, and I can't have close fellowship with you like this. We need the Torah to come along and deal death to my way of doing things. It's so important. We can't read this verse and think, well, the letter kills, therefore the letter is bad. No, the letter kills because the letter is good. The letter is very good. And because it's so good and so holy, it must do a work of death. Skip down for a moment to uh, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged what? Two-edged sword. What's the purpose of a sword? To kill. The living word of God comes to kill, to bring destruction. It pierces as far as the division. There's death. Division is death. Of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, And it's able to judge between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It separates these out. It comes and brings death. That is so important. It's vitally important. But we're also told that we don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Word of God is also our life. It comes and it brings death, but then it comes and brings life. Do you understand that? The letter comes to kill, but then the word of God also comes to bring life. You must have both. All of us eat, correct? If you eat chicken or beef, then uh, some animal had to die for you to have the life that you derive from that meat. And if you're a vegetarian, some plants had to die so that you could derive life from eating those plants. There had to be death first, before there could be life second. This pattern is ironclad throughout the scriptures. 
we must realize that in this world, since Adam and Eve sinned, this is God's pattern. Death, then life. Not life instead of death, but death that is followed by life. So let's go back and let's continue. Picking it up with verse 7. It says now, if the ministry of death, that word ministry is the word diaconia. So where we get the word deacon. <laughs> I, I picture this really, really bad Christian comic book. You call it the deacon of death. I mean, let your imagination go with that. But it's the diaconia of death. There's a service. There's a ministry of death. And it is a ministry. It is a service. Don't miss that. Now, if the ministry of death, which is necessary and important, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit, and the Spirit brings life, have even more glory? Let's pick this apart. There's a ministry, there's a service that the Torah performs that's called the ministry of death. That's part one. And then he talks about the ministry of the Spirit. This is part two. Part one precedes part two. There has to be death before there can be life. I mean another example. My mind is getting flooded by examples. When Israel left Egypt, it was like a death that the Egyptians experienced. In fact, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And they were in tremendous pain and grieving, like a mother going through the labor pains. And, but Israel felt no pain. They went out rich and free and alive. And, uh, but there was a real death there. And over the coming months and years, Israel had to learn to die to the old way of doing things. They could no longer live in the womb of Egypt and in the darkness and the heat of Egypt. They had to now learn how to live for God, and some of them found that very difficult. They just simply could not cut that umbilical cord with Egypt. In fact, that entire generation died, but their children grew up, and they're the ones who then entered into life in the land of Canaan, a place of life and of fruitfulness and of inheritance. There had to be that death before there could be that life. Anyways, I'm digressing. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, stone is dead stuff, and Torah scrolls today are written on parchment, which is also dead, written with ink, which is also a dead thing. But good, necessary. If it came with such glory, and how did... How was the Torah given? Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, you know, when he came down the first time, there was the whole thing going with the, the golden calf. So he had to go back up again for another 40 days and 40 nights. This time it worked out better. And when he came down, after having spent 40 days speaking with the Almighty himself face to face, he came down with these two stone tablets and his face glowed, glowed with the very Shekinah glory of God. 
It was a glorious thing. And Paul says, if bringing down these stone tablets that were carved with in letters of stone, and this is the ministry of death. And let, let's, let's cover this again. I, I, it's a frustrating topic. If, you, if I seem a little bit tongue-tied and frustrated because I, I want so much to get this across, it's such important information to know. It's life-changing information. And if it changes our mind about how we read this chapter, it can also change our lives and how we live out the Word of God. The Torah is a deadly thing. The Torah is what makes sin illegal. It is the thing that tells you, stop what you're doing. You like to worship idols? The Torah comes along and says, don't do that. There's only one God. You have to die to idol worship. You like to steal? Can't do that. You have to die to theft. You covet? You want your neighbor's wife, his house, his cattle, his servants, and whatever he has? You must die to that. No more. Everything about the commandments is death to something. We have to die to how we decide to spend our Saturdays. We have to die to eating certain things that God says are abominations to him. We have to die to speaking falsehoods and lies. We have to die to the dishonoring of our parents that can so easily arise because of bitterness and hurt we may have experienced from them. We have to die to anger and hatred which can cause us to kill our brother. There's so many things we have to separate ourselves from. And this is the ministry of death. This purifying thing that the Torah does in our lives. It points out the unrighteous things, the unrighteous tendencies in our lives and in our souls and our minds that we must die to. The problem with a lot of believers is they want their sin and they want their righteousness at the same time. They want to be able to teach in in their communities and be recognized as righteous people and yet still indulge their pornography addiction and indulge their gossip and indulge their cravings for more money and indulge their pride and their ego, their bitterness, their condemnation of others, their their critical spirit, but they still want their righteousness You can't have both. The righteousness only comes after there's a death. So instead of the ministry of death, when it's it's accomplished its purpose, then there's the ministry of the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, is written on hearts. Because the Spirit is spiritual, The heart, referring to the inner man, our souls, is also a spiritual thing. Now let's look at some New Testament passages, and uh, I should say apostolic scripture passages, that that speak to these. Um, First of all is Romans 3.20. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the Torah no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the Torah comes the knowledge of sin. 
that knowledge of sin means I become aware that there are things in my life that must die. But then when you go to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life and Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So when we die to sin, then the Spirit of God in Messiah can come into our lives. And I think this is it's described in many places quite well, but one of my favorites is Galatians 5, verses 24 and 25. Galatians 5, verses 24 and 25. Now listen to what it says. Now those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now here's the quandary. Some of you see yourselves as belonging to Messiah Yeshua, but you have not crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When it's referring to the flesh, it's not talking about your physical bodies. It's talking about the fleshly drives that so often animate our actions and our words. But the person who belongs to Messiah Yeshua has crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. That's death. That's phase one. Then it goes on. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. But the death comes first, so the walk in the Spirit can follow. Isn't this the same thing that Yeshua said? If, uh, if, um, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. That's death. And then follow me. That's connection in life. The patterns are everywhere. Don't miss them. This is the good aspect of death in our lives. This is the thing where death accomplishes God's purpose. Death is his tool for putting an end and separating us from those things that would destroy us. And when we can die to those, we make space now for his resurrection life to animate us and to use us in those areas where before we were separate from him. And if we can die to those things, we connect to him and to others in a more intimate and real way. We can really begin to experience the life of Messiah that God has for us, the abundant life that he wants for us. So let me read the Galatians 5 passage one more time. Now those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Beautiful passage. He goes on. And by the way, in these verses, verses 7 through 11, he uses the word glory, doxa, where we get the word doxology. He uses the word doxa 10 times. I wonder if Paul planned it this way so that the 10 mentions of the word glory would align with the Ten Commandments on the two stone tablets. I don't know. It's just a fanciful thought I had. And it says that if the ministry of death that came with the letters on stone when Moses' face was glowing, if that brought glory, the ministry of the Spirit in our hearts will bring even greater glory. And we go on with with verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, there we have another ministry. 
ministry of condemnation. We think condemnation is a horrible thing. Well, it is if you're doing the condemning. But when the Word of God condemns an action in your life, that is a good thing. That is life coming into your life. That is the light of God's truth. That is the sort of a spirit coming into your soul and cutting it open and exposing what needs to be exposed and saying that has to go. That word condemnation simply means to judge worthy of punishment. It's uh, katakrino is the verb, to judge worthy of punishment. And the Torah comes in with the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, and says that is worthy of punishment. Now, what is the purpose of punishment? We've all been punished by our parents, hopefully, maybe by teachers and others. The purpose of punishment is to change behavior. But how has behavior changed? You put away an old practice. You die to that practice, and you put on a new practice. Your behavior changes by putting off the old, putting on the new, replacing something that is contrary to God's will with something that is in compliance with his will. So even condemnation is a ministry performed by the word of God. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and there was glory, the ministry of righteousness, and here's the other ministry, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. But until there's a condemnation in our lives where we condemn the old behaviors, the old patterns, the sinful things, until that condemnation takes place, we cannot begin, the word cannot begin its ministry of righteousness in our lives. And it's a glorious thing when we die to something that needs to go. When we agree with God's condemnation of something in our lives that needs to go, there's glory in that. There's relief. And I've seen people, I've experienced this in my own life. You have too, I hope, where you, you finally come to terms with something in your life that's got to go. And you repent of it and you put it away. You die to it. When you feel like a, a load of bricks been taken off your shoulder, you feel light. You feel it's wonderful. It's glorious. And God says, i got something even better for you. Now replace what you were doing. Replace that sinful practice in your life with righteousness. Replace the death with my spirit. Replace what I condemned with righteous deeds. And that's greater glory, much greater glory. But I tell you what, if you put off an old practice and you don't replace it with righteousness... You're like the man who Yeshua describes in Matthew 12 who had a a demon and who had bound up this man. And when the demon is finally exercised and it's driven out and gone, if the man does not fill his house with righteous practices, that demon can come back with seven others that are worse than itself. I've seen it happen. And that's a horrible thing to witness. So if God has helped you to clean something out of your life, replace it right away with what belongs there, and that's righteousness. 
Verse 10, indeed in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. In other words, compared to the glory of God's spirit in our hearts, of his righteousness in our lives, the glory of putting the sins away is nothing in comparison. Verse 11, for of what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So this glory here is temporary. This glory here is permanent. Nothing can take it away. It's an amazing and wonderful thing. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. That needs some explanation. So let's go back to the story itself, which is in Exodus chapter 34. I mentioned already, and you probably know the story as well as I do, that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai that second time with the two new tablets, his face glowed. And this is what the scriptures say. Exodus 34, starting with verse 29. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. And the way it's worded in the Hebrew, we don't know if it's because of Moses speaking with God or of God speaking with Moses. So I assume it's, it's both. His face shone because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face, it glowed, it shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them everything that Adonai had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil, a mashak, I think is the word. He put a veil over his face, a barrier over his face. In the Aramaic, it says he put a house on his face. But whenever Moses went in before Adonai to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. Whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. So the glory of this, the giving of these two stone tablets and giving of the, uh, the, the commandments of the Torah and, and the covenant came with glory. But Paul says this other glory is even greater. Now, let's go back to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are bold, not like Moses. Now, think about it for a moment. Paul is saying that Moses, great man. But when the people said, oh, Moses, your face is glowing too much, cover it, he put a veil on. Paul says, we ain't doing that. And the glory that comes from God's spirit in our lives, we are not going to veil it one single bit. You're just going to have to get used to it. We're going to be bold because this new covenant where the Torah is written on our hearts, where our sins have been replaced by righteousness and God's spirit is dwelling within us, 
we're not hiding this from the world. And there's no veil that could hide it if, if we tried. And then verse 14. But their minds were hardened. I want us to learn a Greek word here. The word is porao, porao. Their minds were hardened, parao, but there's a specific kind of hardness parao refers to. The definition is to cover with a thick skin, to harden by covering with a callus. Now, we've all had calluses, I assume, and calluses are good things. Uh, if you work a lot with your hands doing uh, labor, uh, your hands get real sore, but when they build up calluses, the skin doesn't get sore anymore. If you go barefoot a lot, calluses on the bottom of your feet are good. They protect your feet. It's not, it's not as painful. If you're a guitar player, you'll build calluses on the ends of your, the fingers of your left hand if you're, if you're a right-handed guitar player. And those calluses make it to where it's not so painful to play the guitar. But did you know your mind can get calluses as well? And these are never good things. A mental callus forms when a thought continues to rub in our minds, rub in our minds, and rub, and we don't respond to it, and we refuse to respond to it, and we get to the point where we no longer even feel the rub. How many times has God spoken to you about something? He's put his finger on and said, you need to do this. You need to do this. And refuse it. He says, you need to do this. And we refuse it. You need to do this. And we refuse it. We refuse to hear it. And pretty soon, we don't even feel the pressure anymore of him telling us what we need to do. And we've hardened our minds against God's word. It's also sad when we view something we shouldn't view, maybe in a, uh, at a program, a TV program or a movie. And we see it and we realize, I shouldn't be looking at that. But then we look again. I shouldn't look at that, but we look at it again and again and again. And we become callous to things that should offend us and should turn our stomachs. Calluses on the hands, on the feet, on the elbows, wherever they need to be, are good. But when those calluses are internal, they're always bad. There's no good example of a callus in a heart or in a mind. It says, but their minds were calloused. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the old agreement that God gave them, that same veil remains unlifted. There's a glory of God that a calloused mind cannot see because the calloused mind makes a veil. The callous is something that comes between the sensitivity and between the cause of the pain or between the sensitivity and the cause of the joy, the truth, and the light. The veil is like a callus that separates two things that should not be separated in this case. And he says the same veil remains unlifted because only through Messiah is it taken away. Yes, to this day when Moses is read, when they read the Torah, a veil lies over their hearts. There's a barrier. 
But when one turns to the master, now you're, I know the translation will say Lord as if it's referring to God, but usually when, Mo, when Paul is referring to God, he says God. Like in chapter 4, he first verse, therefore I have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But when he uses the term Lord, it means master. It usually refers almost 100% to Yeshua. But when one turns to the master, the veil is removed. Now the master is the spirit, and where the spirit of the master is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the master, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the master who is the spirit. Yeshua said, it's imperative for you, I go away. But I'll send you the Spirit. In other words, the same Spirit sent me. He says, I'm going to send it into you. But I need to move physically out of this world so that my Spirit that animates me be in you. And I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be right there with you. So what is the thing Paul says is done away with? Is it the Torah? No. It's the veil. And this veil blinds the minds of Jews to where they can't recognize Yeshua. But this veil works the other way just as well. It blinds the minds of Christians where they can't see the Torah. What needs to be taken out of the way is not the Torah. It's the veil that separates Yeshua and the Torah. Those invested in Yeshua need to see what's veiled from their eyes, and that is the beauty and the wonder of God's standard of righteousness, the Torah, the bread of life. And Jews whose minds are veiled from seeing the glory of their Messiah, of Yeshua, that veil needs to be taken out of the way so they can see him. Jews who don't know Yeshua want Yeshua taken out of the way. Christians believe the Torah has been taken out of the way. What needs to be taken out of the way is the veil, the barrier. And that is what Paul is so precise and so specific about in this chapter. I hope this chapter has brought some clarity. And I hope you begin to realize that death, as uncomfortable and painful as it is, is not only necessary, it is the first step of coming into a righteous relationship with Messiah. Don't fear death. Its sting is gone. Its victory is gone. And we should be constantly dying day by day as we deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. Constantly every day dying to something else that's robbing us of the glory God wants us to see in him. It's robbing us of another level of righteousness, another level of effectiveness in this world, another level of being light to the world. You know, Moses, it says, was not aware that his face glowed. And I know a lot of you, brothers and sisters, you're not aware of the glow that goes forth in your own lives. You're oblivious to it. And I know I've shared with some of you, and whenever I do, I'll talk about the light I see in your life. You'll think, you always give me this funny look like, what, me? No. But I see it. I guarantee the world sees it. It's not important for you to see the light that goes forth from you. It would probably be destructive if you could. But the world sees it. So you keep dying to self. You keep dying to your own ways. 
And I guarantee the light of God in your heart and in your face will continue to grow and continue to illuminate those around you and change the world. So, death is not our enemy. It isn't. It is the last enemy that will be destroyed. That's separation from God. But in the meantime, even death itself is a tool in his hand to bring us closer to the resurrection life he wants us to experience and display every day. So here are some discussion questions for you. If you are God's letter to the world, what message are they reading? What message is the world reading from you? What editing needs to be done? Second question. Describe the difference between the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, and the Scriptures. This is a very important thing. We as Messianic believers must have this under our belts and and clearly understand the answer to this. Number three, what did Paul want done away with? That's an easy one, I hope, if you've listened to the teaching. Number four, can you identify times in your own life when you experienced death and it had a good outcome? Take a moment to think about that. And if you're in your home group right now and listening to this, if you sense God's Spirit telling you to share this, then die to your own pride and ego and share it because someone needs to hear it. On the other hand, that might be some very private things you don't need to share. You'll know the difference. But die to fear, die to self-consciousness if there's something God wants you to share with the group. And let some light go forth from your life. And of course, the notes and the passages that, um, that, that I read from are, are at the end of the notes. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, we thank you so much that death has no victory to it, has no sting left at it, and it is a tool that you use in our lives every single day if we will let you if we'll deny our right to ourselves and take up our crosses and follow you, Lord, we can learn to die to the things that would kill us, die to the things that would destroy us and hamper us and reduce our effectiveness in this world. And then we can follow you and experience abundant life and your light. Lord, I pray that the letter you write upon our hearts that the letter that we are to the world would be a clear one, filled with light, and we would be like those stone tablets, though we have bodies of flesh. I pray that the light of your word would come through us. It It would permeate us. So in our deeds and in our words and the expressions on our faces would just radiate your light. Lord, help us this dead stone and this the soil that makes up our bodies may be something through which you can shine your light in a way that brings glory to you. We ask it in the name of Yeshua. Amen.